Welcome to Bible Education Institute. My name is Reverend Henry Kelly. Today, the book that we're going to be going over is called uh, Bonhoeffer. You spell it B-O-N-H-O-E-F-F-E-R is the last name. First name is Dietrich, so it's Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Dietrich is spelled D-I-E-T-R-I-C-H. And again, Bonhoeffer, the last name, B-O-N-H-O-E-F-F-E-R. And it was written by Eric Metaxas. And it says under Bonhoeffer, it says, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. And you can get this, uh, you can get it used by going to, um, you can either go on your search engine and on your phone or your computer and look up, um, just put in uh, bon, uh, Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas, and he's put Eric Metaxas, E-R-I-C-M-E-T-A-X-A-X, and he's the author. And you just put in a search and it'll pop up different places that will sell it. And um, you can also put in there, used in your search engine, so that way you can get it cheaper. Or if you want to buy it new, you can do that too. It just depends what your preference is. Myself, I like to save a dollar, so I like buying used books. It's fine with me. And it's also kind of worn. Which is good, is to flip the pages, but that's just my preference. Everybody's different. Um, so, so Bonhoeffer came from a family that were very intelligent, high intelligence, and um, you could say they were they were German. They're from Germany, and this was in the thirty. Well. Um, the time we're going to be speaking about him is when he, um, you know, he's kind of grown up and he was very smart. Uh, he he received his Ph.D. in as a, a Christian biblical theologian uh, in his 20s. I believe it was 19. I mean, he was uh, 24, something around that. But he was very young, very smart. And he came from a family that, you know, they were all the scientists and you know, like uh, psychologists, stuff like that. And you can read more about them. Actually, you can look online, you can Google them or whatever search engine you want to use, and it'll show you a lot on it. The book's very, very interesting, very good. And the reason why I'm talking about Bonhoeffer now is today is Sunday, November 15th of 2020, and the United States is going through some very difficult times at this particular time. And the church needs to wake up, which is the same problem Dietrich Bonhoeffer had in the time he faced with Nazi Germany, which was, I think, they got into power about 33, 34, and then, um, well, they were full power about 36, and then that's when everything got real, really bad, really quick, really fast, and then they came after the church, of course. But at that time, most of the churches there were more of just, you know, intellectual. They talk about the Bible and all this stuff. And, you know, just the biblical, you know, the, I guess you say Christianese, you can say. Um, they were about, you know, the knowledge, but not much on, you know, uh, the power of God or anything like that. And the reality of God it was more about talking about God, that kind of thing at that particular time. 
And so that was like the, you know, late 20s, early 30s, whatever. But as he was growing up, so he was sitting around the dinner table and everybody would discuss high-level thinking things. And if he had something to say, you better be able to back it up with facts. They were all about facts, how to critically think, which is something I like to talk about. If you watch awesome of my videos, uh, and that's Bob Education Institute, you can find it on YouTube and Rumble, um, but mostly YouTube right now. Uh, and uh, so Bubba Education Institute or Reverend Henry Kelly or both, whatever, we have to put it in there. But it'll pull it up and you can watch him. But uh, yeah, it also, anyways, getting back to Bonhoeffer. Um, so he would think, you know, he'd have this kitchen table with eating at that particular time, and they're having very serious discussions about all kinds of different things. And they wanted you to to jump in, but you had to have facts to back up anything you said. So he was pretty quiet during that time and shy or whatever. But when he was about 14, he figured out that he wanted to be a theologian. And so he presented that to his family, and he had the facts to back it up, why he wanted it, and all that kind of stuff. So he, and the one thing about his family is whatever you said you were going to do, you had to do it or else. Because everybody was successful and they expect you to be successful. Came from a large family. I think it was like um, four boys, four girls, something like that. But it was a pretty large family. Uh, and uh, uh, the sum is accurate. What I'm saying, something, some of it may not be quite, you know, exactly. But but uh, you get the point. You can look it up for yourself. But he came from a very large family, about eight, nine. I know one of the. One of the boys were killed in World War One, but he was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was too young to, to serve in that war, which is probably good for him. But it was a pretty bad one. Um, so that was after World War One, and Germany was you know penalized for supposedly starting a war or whatever, and so it was rough for a while. Then it started stabling a little bit. Uh, they were trying to create a crumb, uh, democracy there and whatever, and so his family was you know had a lot of input in those kind of, you know, things going on. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was really searching, you know, for, um, you know, he wanted to know about God and learn about God, and he's very smart. And then I think at the, uh, the late 20s, early 30s, he decided to take a trip to America to experience what's going on there. He went to some theological schools in America at that time, and at that time, some of the schools were, you know, um, just, they would just kind of go over the things, but they weren't really into it. And then he met a friend there. He was an African-American friend. And his name was Frank Fisher. And he invites Bonhoeffer to this church he had been attending, uh, which was one of the largest churches in America at that time. And it was uh, mainly African-American because they were, you know, that time they had the segregation and all that going on and um so this church was called abyssinian baptist church in harlem new york so he goes there and he sees a whole different picture of uh what serving christ is not only did they have the head knowledge but they showed it you know they had some emotions going with it you know, not that it's about all emotion, but it should be some, you know, and they were very passionate about what they did and they showed it and weren't afraid of it, you know, and he found that very interesting and he started going, he started going 
because he was here, you know, for some months. And while he was here, he would attend uh, Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, New York, every uh, Sunday weekend. And he would teach, I believe it was a middle school Bible study. It was amazing. And he just really, he learned a lot there more than in the school he was attending, the theological school here. And he um, he just learned a lot and it changed his whole life. He got real serious about God. So instead of just, you know, reading the facts about the Bible now, when he went back to Germany, you know, he would ask him, he would start using words like the living God and have you made a commitment to God, Jesus, you know, he got real serious about it. So everybody that knew him knew that something had changed within him because he was completely different. He was on fire. He, he caught the, the fire, you know, and so from that point, you know, he was really uh, uh, doing all he could and, you know, pastoring and teaching and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, you know, Hitler, Nazi Germany kind of took over at that time. When he had left for America to study for a while, they were like number 12 of the leading, uh, you know, power parts there in Germany. They had, you know, like several groups or even like, the, I think we call them groups. So he was like, they were like the 12th group. When he came back, they were second, second group to the main power. So then eventually they just took over everything. And that's when things started to change. But he was outspoken. He would do speeches. And he'd get on the radio and do speeches. Of course, Hitler didn't like that. The Nazis, you know, didn't like that at all. But at that time, they were just taking the power and they were trying to find a way to control the, the church. They already had a pact with the Catholic Church and was able to kind of stifle them down. But then they had, which, which, he was, which Hitler was familiar with, but he wasn't familiar with the Protestant Church. That was a whole different, whole different animal. So anyways, and so, so then Hitler had someone that was going to be like the, uh, uh, how would you say, the connector for, between him and the Protestant churches and pastors there. So they were trying to convince him to, you know, come along or whatever. And, um, and so Bonhoeffer just wouldn't do that. But, uh, um, so eventually, and then. And so then they had his family and friends stuff helped him to get away from there to continue Christian work in America because they knew what was coming. And, you know, with all that, they already started seeing Jews were being persecuted and whatever, and then they were trying to come out to the church and all that. So, and they were actually Protestants. They were actually helping the Jewish people and everything. Um, and uh, so he comes to America. They all sacrificed to get him there. And on the way here, because he had to take a ship at that particular time, from germany so it was the you know kind of a long war he had time to think and pray and see god and he realized that while he was traveling here that just wasn't what he was supposed to be doing he was not in the will of god so he was here for a little while and then he decided to go back to germany because that's where god wanted him to be in the thick of things so when he came back to germany then he got with a thing of brother-in-law and some other family members and so they got him into where he didn't have to be scripted to go um, to go to the regular German army because he didn't want to fight with a with the you know with what the leaders had changed the army into and the country into where they were persecuting people and barbarians and all like that so they um, 
So he got a job with his brother-in-law, I think, in like intelligence or something like that. And he used that, and it was all a it was all like a group that were working together to overthrow Hitler, and that was part of it to get you know to let other people know that like Britain know that you know there were Germans there that cared about you know freeing and getting away from Hitler and all like that, and that they didn't want this mess going on or whatever. So he did that. And uh, he was outspoken. And at the same time, he had created a kind of like a uh, a seminary, like a private seminary. But it was all he had to get raise money, ask people to help him, whatever they did. And so he had this, and he was trying to teach the boys. And then, and then it got to a point where they had to, you know, they couldn't stay at a single place. They had to go around meeting different places or whatever. And so eventually, with what he was doing in that. Uh, when um, like that movie Valkyrie they had where it showed about I think it had Tom Cruise in it and it showed where they had tried to you know kill Hitler and like that and then once they discovered the plot uh, then the Nazis you know and Hitler and stuff they round up everybody and when they were and then Bonhoeffer's name happened to pop up in one of the conversations of trying to find out what was going on and so they got him put him in jail and then eventually, uh, the war was getting close to end, and uh, he, um, so Bonhoeffer was transferred from a regular prison to a concentra concentration camp for, you know, to be held there. And then Hitler wanted, um, he wanted to, um, to do vengeance, and so probably about either a few weeks or a month, whatever, a month of, or, or less. Um, but in fact, the day he was killed, or, or they had him hung anyways, um, let me see, was Hitler had him hung April 9th of 1945. So you see how close it, you know, how close it was there. And uh, so he had him hung and killed. So he pretty much was a martyr for the faith. And he had hopes. Bonhoeffer had hopes of getting out because he knew the war was about to end. And he had a fiancé and all that, but to no end. But they said as he went to the gallows, you know, to the place to be hanged, you know, he had no fear. And he was trusting in Christ. And he was actually looking forward to meeting Jesus when, you know, he died. And therefore, that's... What happened? Um, it's it's a really good book, but but he he was one of them that uh, at, when he came back from America after the first time when he went to the Apostolic uh, Apostolic Baptist Church in Harlem, New York, and it changed his life, and that was a motivator for him to motivate others, the other Protestants there, and you know help them to. To, to see the truth and become on fire for God, you know. But sometimes it's it, it's a cost to follow God. You know, there's always a cost in following God. He also wrote a book. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book. Uh, let me see. Let me see what the copyright was. The first copyright was. Let me see. Let me see if I can find it in the book. It was 1937 was published. 
So that was right before everything hit the fan pretty good. Because Hitler was pretty much in power by that time. And uh, so it came out. And after that, he wouldn't let him write any more books. But it's a good book. And it's by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship. That's another good book. Fantastic. So you get this two-book set. It will be great. You can put it in your library and study. It's really good. Fantastic. You know, you could also, they have uh, some documentaries on YouTube you can watch. It's really good. Uh, you can look up Eric McTaxis with Bonhoeffer, and he has, I think, uh, like a lecture he did. He had a couple lectures on it, and he has some other books he wrote that we're going to talk about also down the road. Um, so, so friends, we need to get serious about, you know, serving Christ and, you know, not just being pastors and teachers and stuff, but wherever that you may, you know, on your job, when you're working, you need about Christ and um, we need to help to get the schools turned back around or just create new schools as it was supposed to be. The, foref the forefathers, they were raised, they were either homeschooled or they went to, uh, to a regular public school, which was for... Um, that was Christian. It was about teaching the Bible. You know, I even have some of the, the little books that they would use to teach. It was amazing. The alphabet was all about Christ, and that's how you memorize the alphabet, and you memorize Christ all at the same time. It was really great. And everything was about Christ, serving Christ. And we need to get back to that. We need to get back to the beginning, you know, back to our Christian heritage and serving God. But, you know, it's going to take us, each and every one of us, doing our part to fight back. And it's our part to also, um, you know, to, to be a light in a very dark world. But, you know, there's like, if you really, let's say the 60% of Christians in America, right? But real biblical Christians, I would, it would probably, they say it's about 30%. But on the other side, the ones that are non-Christians creating havoc, they want to destroy the Constitution, destroy America, they hate America, everything like that, hate God. And they're like 5%. So how come 5% can take over 30%, you know? That's because there's a lot of people not willing to do nothing. It may cost your life, may cost your job, may cost whatever to stand for Christ and to stop falling and, and going for everything that they're trying to do, shut down churches and everything, using, you know, the facade of uh, a uh, virus, which is the same thing as a flu, it's just a respiratory flu, but they're using this because it's convenient. At certain times, you don't have to wear masks or anything. Don't worry about it. You can be in groups celebrating or burning down buildings, killing people, stealing, whatever. That's fine. But then other times, oh, you can't do church. You can't sing. You can't do here. You can't do that. No, we got to stand up and do what's right and fight because we have a constitution to back us up now. But it may not be there forever if we don't do anything. It's up to us. Remember, the way the founding fathers set it up, instead of serving a king, we're the kings. You have... What there's, I think I said there's 330 million people in America right now that they know of. So there's 330 million kings. And the ones in, we send to Washington to be our representatives, they're our servants, not the other way around. But you see, they quit teaching that in schools. They took God out of the schools. And we allowed them to do that. We're to blame, and especially the churches. So we need to fight back, you know, do everything we can, you know, to teach preach stand up when we can and you know stand up and do what we're supposed to do before christ remember if you feed if you um 
if you fear man more than God, then you're not where you need to be in Christ. And if you're listening to this and don't know Christ, it's a good time to hear what I have to say right now. Okay? So it's like this. If you don't, we all have sinned. Let's take the good person test. Have you ever lied? Everybody's lied. And if you say you didn't lie, you're lying. Because we've all told a lie even a child, no matter how long ago it was, it doesn't matter. You lie one time, that's it. We're guilty. Okay? Because God has the Ten Commandments. It's called God's moral law. And he's written, his, written it on our hearts. So that way, that's why we know right from wrong. You know, we reach an age of accountability when, you know, your mind develops enough to know right from wrong as a child. And for everybody, it's a little different. And some never get there because, you know, they have other issues going on. And that's different. But we're talking about those that, you know, who are in the normal capacity. But, um, so once you know that, you know, lying is wrong, stealing is wrong, murder is wrong, you know, lying is wrong, you know, all that stuff. So we've all done that, you know. Have you ever looked at another person with lust? No matter what it is, whether it's watching pornography or whatever it is, you know. Um, then according to Jesus in the New Testament, he says if you looked at another person with lust, then you have lusted in your heart. Therefore, you've committed adultery, which is one of the Ten Commandments, God's moral law, you know. Um, and it says, have you ever made a God, you grab an image of God or made another God? And we have we made a God in our own mind that accepts everything we do and it allows us to feel good about everything even though we know it's wrong so yeah we've already done that too um have we ever uh, and and then lying is um bearing false witness which is lying that's that's the you know ten commandments stealing and says have you ever hated someone and the new testament says have you ever hated someone then according to to Christ, you know, if you hate someone, then, then you've already c committed murder in your heart. You see how that works? Yeah. So we're all guilty, right? See, I already come to Christ. But then we must come to Christ with a sorrowful heart, knowing we've broken God's moral law. It's kind of like if you're a child and your dad tells you, don't touch this vase. It's very expensive. I have it in the cabinet. It's just to look at. So don't. Be careful not to knock the case over whatever. It's very expensive. Well, little Johnny seen a vase just like that at a store. It was only like five bucks. He said, well, I got five bucks. So he says, I'm going to touch this thing. Because, you know, he was told not to. So he decides, I'm going to touch this thing. He touches it. He hears his dad drives up. He gets nervous. He goes to put it, put the vase back into the shelf or back into the case. And he, he chipped the top of it because he puts it in too hard. So it's broken. Now it's... You know, the valley is gone. Dad comes in to see what he's done. And all of a sudden, little Johnny looks at him and he realizes he'd done something wrong. He starts, his, his eyes start to get watery and stuff. And and he's, and he said, and he just looks down, starts crying. His dad says, you know what? I'm going to forgive you, you know. And what I'll do is I'll just get another one, even though it costs a lot of money. I'll just have to take it out of savings to get this because this is you know something from the family or whatever and uh so you see this is how god does us if we repent then he forgives us you know if we we look that we're sorry we forgive us see sin is like this let me give you another analogy um there was a there was a little girl looking at some sheep you know, in a green meadow. Oh, they look so white and pretty. She said, oh, that's white. Next day she gets up 
and goes look at the sheep, but it had snowed that night. She goes in there now the sheep. The background was snow, white, clear, you know, uh, fresh white snow that was really pretty. But now the sheep look dingy because it's the backdrop you're looking at it. So before you couldn't tell that the sheep was actually dirty because they look white against green. It looks pretty good. But when you get pure white to that kind of white, then you can see it. That's what sin is. See, sin uh, taints everything. But we're looking at it from our perspective. When you look at it from God, he sees the dirtiness of us because we've all have sin and broken his moral law. So you say, well, how, so, so if he were to die, knowing that you broke God's moral law, would you go to heaven or hell? You would go to hell. So therefore, if... Um, uh, Jesus came, and he walked three, three and a half years, preaching the gospel. That means the good news, that how you can be saved now. And then he he allowed himself to, to be took by the religious leaders, you know, at, at the end part of it. And then they were, he, he was turned over to the Romans at that time, which were brutal. And they whipped him, and the whips had metal metal pieces with bone on it. And um, they uh, they just beat him. I think it was like it was a lot of lashes, and they beat him right, and or, or whipped him. And he had like his meat was coming out, and flesh was hanging everywhere. And he was just had beat him to a pulp. You couldn't even recognize his blood everywhere. And then they they made a wooden cross, a big heavy wooden cross, or like uh, tree beams and stuff. And then uh, they made him carry it, but he couldn't. They got a guy from, he was a, uh, somebody from Serene, I think it was. A Serenian, that was, he was a Serenian. So he helped him with the cross. They got him to that hill, whatever, got to, you know, hang him up there with the other two thieves. And uh, and, and they put you right through the street, so it's, not, it's embarrassing, you know, on top of that. So they put you there, they put uh, heavy, thick nails in his hand and his feet. And then he put you where you had to hold yourself up. That's how they would put you. And so as you get weaker and weaker, you would suffocate and die. And so that was their their torture. Plus you had all that pain going on in your hands and feet and stuff. And hung him up there. And then right before he he died himself, you know, he gave up the ghost willingly. He said, it is finished, which meant the price has been paid for sin, for our sins. Now we can come by faith and believing right so it's kind of like if you go in a court of law and you stand before a judge and you got a lot of outstanding tickets and all kind of stuff and he the and uh, the fines are too expensive you don't have the money you're going to jail but somebody you don't know came in paid the fine to set you free now the judge can legally let you go because the debt for that or the fine has been paid for that particular law breaking that you broke God, uh, man's law, right? And man's law comes from God's law. Most people don't know that. But anyways, so now you're, he's legally can free you. It's the same with Christ. Christ came, paid the penalty because God is the God of the universe and his laws always stand. So to pay for our law breaking, that was, that was the fine that had to be paid. It had to be that severe because that law breaking is severe. So he had paid the ultimate price. That now at this time we can come by faith believing. So that and sin is breaking God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. You know, 
that we went over. So if you want to be saved today, come with a sorrowful heart, a contrite heart, being sorrowful, knowing you've broken God's moral law, ask God to forgive you of your sins, of your law-breaking, and then transfer the trust from yourself to Christ alone. And then you put on Christ as a parachute. Kind of like if you're in a plane that's about to crash, you get a parachute, you hold it up for dear life, and nobody's going to take it away from you because that's going to save you from the jump to come. And somebody, maybe some of them don't believe it's crashing, they're crazy or whatever, and they're making fun of you. You don't care. That's going to happen to you when you become a Christian. A lot of people are not going to like you anymore. And it could cost your life, but it's worth it. Because Jesus is going to save you from the judgment to come. And if you were to die and go to hell, hell is where you will burn for eternity. You'll have a special body that will never be burned up. You'll be tortured by demons. It, 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 uh, you'll be in pain the whole time, and it never ends, and it's forever and ever. There's no time. It's horrible because it's for rejecting God. Because God says in Matthew chapter 10, says, if you be, deny me before man, I'll deny you before the Father. And there's a lot of people right now in hell, and they have that memory of all the times that they could have come and repented to Christ, but never did. You know, and that's just how it is. So. If you do this, you can go to heaven. You know, God has made it very simple, but you got to be serious and you got to be true. Then once you come to Christ, you have to turn away from your sin, read the Bible daily. That's how you go to become strong and learn about him. If you want a relationship, you've got to learn, learn about the other person. So we do that and we find out how to live our lives and how to do the right thing and how to share the same truth you've got now, which is called the gospel, good news. And you can start sharing, but read the Bible daily without fail and do what it says. Jesus says, and I think it's John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. And that's what we must do to be saved. You know, there it is clear and understandable for you to understand. Let me pray for you. Father God, for those listening to this podcast, I just ask you, Lord, to commit their hearts if they don't know you. And if they do know you, Lord, Father God, I ask you to encourage them and give them that fire they need. To go out and witness and do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you a little bit, just one more little news. Um, uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon was known. He was in the 1800s from England. He was a great famous preacher. Everybody knew him in America, too. He was called the Prince of Preachers. And he said, he made a statement. And he says this. If you're not concerned about the lost, you must not be saved yourself. Think about that. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers in 1800, said, If you're not concerned about the lost, you must not be saved yourself. Something to think about, isn't it? Well, God bless you, and hope this helps. And until the next podcast, be blessed.